Man, I sure enjoyed singing and worshiping with you tonight. The music was beautiful as we focused on Christ and his power to save us and Christ alone. Hey, we had a WANA Bible quizzing here uh, today over in the Life Center. Over a hundred parents were here cheering on their children, and we had three Edgewood teams take first, second, and third place, and we just rejoice with what God is doing in and through our Awana ministry. If you don't know much about Awana, it's built not on games, not on fun, that's certainly part of it, it's built on scripture memory. And these kids get up and share verses at this Bible quizzing time, so it's beautiful. Uh, Right before the service uh, started today, uh, an Edgewood member came up and handed me an envelope. And a couple weeks ago, our topic was, your testimony is powerful. And we learned together how to write out our salvation testimonies, focusing on the before, how, and after. And this was written by Sarah Daggett. I haven't had a chance to read it yet. I'm just holding this up because if you haven't done that yet, perhaps you'll find that as motivational to do that. Well, recently, someone posted a picture of me and my second grade classmates. In case you're wondering, I'm the burly and buff-looking guy on the top left here. I put a star by it, and I noticed I'm not smiling very much, which goes along with my thug-life, tough-guy image. (laughs) This picture stirred up a whole bunch of memories, so I have four sisters, I'm the oldest, and we had this like alarm system in our family. If my sisters were in trouble, if somebody was harassing them, picking on them, they would yell out these words. They're not really words. This is what they would do. They'd go, wit," And when they would do that, I'd come running. And whoever was picking on them would run away. No, not always, but that's just kind of what we did. As I was looking at this picture, My favorite memory, though, here, and I put a circle around him, is Jack Wills. Look at his eyes. I respected him, and I can't imagine what his mom thought when he got home. He's just going like this, looking up. Uh, I'm sure his mom was not too impressed. Well, last weekend, Pastor Tim reminded us of all the conflicts that the Apostle Paul went through. I mean, think about it. The Jews in the temple wanted to get rid of him. The commander of the guard wanted to flog him. The high priest ordered him punched in the face. And in turn, Paul looked at the high priest and called him a whitewashed wall. Well, we're going to see today some Jews are now planning to ambush Paul and assassinate him. And through it all, Paul kept a good conscience and was comforted by the Lord. Pastor Tim helped us learn this truth from that passage. In the turmoil of life, a clear conscience creates the basis for spiritual courage and comfort. Now, before we get into the rest of Acts chapter 23, I want to circle back and pick up a verse that Pastor Tim preached last week, verse he ended with. I want us to begin with it today. If you have your Bible with you, open it up to Acts chapter 23, verse 11. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are Bibles in front of you, and it's found on page 1186. And so here's what I want us to see, verse 11. The 1108, thank you. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Those words meant everything to Paul. The Lord came and stood right next to him and gave him these words of comfort. This is the fourth time in the book of Acts that the Lord appears to Paul to encourage him. And when Paul was struggling, he's feeling overwhelmed, the Lord stood right beside him. That word means to place oneself near, to set over. The Lord promises to be with us, to come near us, to comfort us when you and I are going through problems. 
I think about what the Apostle Paul wrote. End of life, he's sitting in a prison, he's just about to die, and this is what he says, 2 Timothy 4, 17, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. And then that phrase, take courage, is a command. It means to take heart, be of good cheer. Reminds me of what God said to Joshua, Joshua 1.9, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Jesus spoke something similar to the disciples. John 16.33, they're distressed. They're discouraged. And he says these words, guys, take heart, take courage. I've overcome the world. The Lord of heaven and earth made a personal visit to Paul to encourage him to keep going. And would you know, Paul was commended for testifying about the facts of Jesus in Jerusalem, and he's commissioned to do the same in Rome. I love how the word facts <laughs> is used here. Notice it doesn't say feelings. It's like the facts about Jesus. The verifiable truth about Jesus. Observe also the word must. That means it's a necessary and inevitable duty. It's often used by Luke to indicate divine necessity. It can be translated literally like this, must thou. We also saw in Acts 19.21 how the Spirit made it clear that Paul was to take the gospel to Rome. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, but he wasn't going to stay in Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must, there's the word again, I must also see Rome. These words are words of comfort to Paul. These are words of commendation. They're also words of commission. They gave Paul courage to keep going. He would need to remember this because things are about to go really south in the rest of this chapter. You know, the same is true for us. We need to focus on the facts of our faith not in our fickle feelings, and remember that God is always at work even when we can't see him. When things are confusing and chaotic, allow the promise of his presence to give you comfort. Now, beginning in verse 14, it appears as if Paul was outnumbered by his enemies. He's about to be assassinated. And even though he had just received a promise to testify that he was going to testify about the gospel in Rome, things look really bleak. I wonder if he tried shouting, Woo, what? (laughs) Nobody came. And certainly not in the way he expected. The passage we're about to read And see, tonight is very fascinating, interesting. Let me tell you what's not in the passage. There are no commands. There's no exhortations. The names of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, well, they're not mentioned at all. We see no supernatural miracles, no direct message from the Lord. We don't see believers praying. There's no explanation of salvation. There's no exposition of biblical doctrine. Ah, but what we do see is an amazing illustration of the delightful doctrine of God's providence. Now, the easiest way to remember the doctrine of providence is to focus on the root of the word. See the word provide? In providence. Providence is the preserving and governing of all things under the intentional sovereign rule of God. I appreciate this definition from a website called Got Questions. Divine providence is the governance of God by which He, with wisdom and love, cares for and directs all things in the universe. <laughs> 
it's really fascinating. Today I got a text. My uh, practice Saturday mornings is I get up early and I go over the message and I'm praying and I go over the message again. I get it in my heart, get it in my head. And I received this text from an Edgewood member and he had just listened to a podcast and he said, hey, when you get some time, you might want to check this out. Well, I was at the point where I had some time and so I just clicked on it. It was an hour and 15 minutes. I I didn't think I was going to listen to the whole thing, but I thought, well, I'll just listen to part of it. You know what it was on? God's providence. Now, wasn't that providential? (laughs) Well, the more I listened, the more I wanted to listen. And perhaps some of you follow the podcast. It's pretty popular. It's by Mike Rowe. It's called The Way I Heard It. And it was a fascinating interview about George Washington, about George Washington's faith. And it was with Dr. Peter Lilback. He's professor of historical theology at Westminster Theological Seminary. In the podcast, and this is what got my attention, Mike Rowe asked this question of this guy who knows so much about George Washington. He said this, what about luck? Does luck play a role in American history? Dr. Lilback gave this answer. I was listening on my phone downstairs in our basement, and he gave his answer, and I stopped it. I rewound it. I took my pen out, and I wrote it down. Here's what he said. If you want to use Washington's words, it's the word providence, because it was his favorite theological word. In his research, Lilbeck counted George Washington using the word providence 275 times in his letters and in his speeches. He used it to describe the death of his own daughter. He also used providence to describe victory in war and personal heartache. Perhaps you're aware the founders, our founders, concluded the Declaration of Independence with these words. Quote, for the support of this declaration with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Well, let's look at what Isaiah chapter 46, 9 through 11, if you're not in the practice of taking notes or writing things down, I suggest you write at least this reference down. By the way, we have sermon notes available at both of our resource kiosks. It's also on our app. Check out this passage. I am God, and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. (laughs) Check out this next verse. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. From the east, this is so cool, I summon a bird of prey. A bird God summons. From a far off land, a man, notice, to fulfill my purpose. What I have said that I will bring about. What I have planned that I will do. Isn't that a beautiful passage? See, what appears to us as random chance is in fact overseen and orchestrated by a sovereign God who knows the number of hairs on every head, which in my case is getting easier to count. (laughs) See, here's what I'm hoping we come away with today. So don't just look at this, oh, this is another sermon. I want us to get something today. And it's huge. It's, It's like theological and so practical. And by the way, theology is practical. When you study God, it's doxology, breaks out into praise, but it is so practical. So here's what I'm hoping we get. Trust in the providence of God even when you can't feel the presence of God. 
So this text offers us four ways for our trust to increase. You ready to dive in? I sense you are. Number one, recognize the plot against you. Okay, I'm in verse 12 through 15, right from Acts chapter 23. When it was day, so this is the day after the Lord appeared to him, the Jews made a plot And they bound themselves by an oath. What was the oath? Well, neither to eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we've strictly bound ourselves and said, we strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Paul, they say it twice. Now, therefore, you, they're speaking to these religious leaders, along with the council, like the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, give notice to the tribune, that's the the military officer, to bring him, that's Paul, down to you, as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. Here's the third time we read it. And we are ready to kill him when he comes near. (laughs) These Jews would certainly know the Ten Commandments, wouldn't they? Well, there's a commandment forbidding murder, but they're filled with rage. They're filled with revenge, and they somehow have justified their murderous scheme. By the way, Jesus predicted that would happen. John 16, verse 2, indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you, he's talking to his disciples, whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. The word plot refers to a conspiracy. This takes us back to Matthew 26, verse 4, where we read this about the enemies of Jesus who plotted together to arrest Jesus. Same word, plotted together to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. These are religious radicals who are determined to kill Paul. They are so determined that they placed themselves under a curse if they don't fulfill it. Now, let me see if I can unpack what that means because we we don't really talk that way today. Literally, they're saying this. We anathematize ourselves with an anathema. Okay, let let me see if I can explain that. These modern-day suicide bombers would rather die than let Paul live. They're willing to spend eternity under the curse of God. That's what they're saying. They're not only saying we're willing to die, but they're willing to be cursed by God in eternity if Paul's allowed to live. Now, interestingly, in contrast to that, think of what Paul says in Romans 9, verse 3. Paul is willing to be accursed in eternity if it meant that his Jewish brothers and sisters would be what? Saved. That's how much he loved them. Well, in the meantime, they refused food and water, which shows how determined they were. Well, just like Judas did in Luke 22.4, these 40 fanatical men realized they needed the help of the religious leaders to accomplish their assassination plans. So they urged these leaders to ask the Roman officials, remember Rome's in charge, the Roman officials to bring Paul down to them where they were waiting in ambush. It's an illustration of Psalm 37, 32. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. Now, one would think these religious leaders would shut this down. But they don't. They comply with the plot. Okay, let me bring this to where we are today. Are you aware that there's a plot against you? There's a conspiracy against you, against me. 
Warren Wiersbe writes, the Christian life is not a playground. It's a battleground. And we must be in our guard at all times. And according to Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, you and I have three enemies that are stalking us incessantly all the time. Here they are. It's our own flesh within us. It's the world around us. And in the spiritual realm, it's the devil and his demons plotting our demise. Well, in our flesh, 1 Peter 2.11 says, the passions of our flesh, listen to this phrase, wage war against our souls. <laughs> the passions of our own flesh are at war with our souls. And that phrase refers to a long-term military com- campaign filled with relentless and malicious aggression. One pastor said it's like we're in this internal civil war between our flesh and our spirit. Well, there's another enemy, the world. See, we're all faced with outside influences and temptations as well. 1 John 2, 15 and 16, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And thirdly, the devil. 1 Peter 5, 8 says that you and I are being targeted by the evil one who wants to ambush us. He wants to trip us up and bring us down. So Peter writes, be sober-minded, Christian. Be watchful. Be on your guard. Why? Because your adversary, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. By the way, I just heard this week the Satanic Temple held a three-day convention in Scottsdale, Arizona. They called it SatanCon. It was held last weekend. They claim it was the largest Satanic conference ever, even reaching out to the Guinness Book of World Records for confirmation. By the way, that's the same group that's sponsoring a Satan club at a school here in in our community in Moline. And do you know why they held that convention in Scottsdale? Well, they did it on purpose because they wanted to open in prayer at a city council meeting and they were told no. So they said, well, we're going to have the largest conference ever in your community. Brothers and sisters, there's a plot against you. There's a conspiracy to take you down and take you out. So what do we do? Trust in the providence of God, even when you don't feel the presence of God. Number two, rely on the provision of God to you. Now, the plot against Paul actually seems like a pretty good plan. These 40 hangry men, see what I did there? Angry and hungry, hangry? No, never mind. These hungry men could easily surround and capture and kill one prisoner. It's 40 to 1, right? And and they're in ambush. By all accounts, Paul should be dead before the sun's even up. (laughs) When people say the Bible's boring, I want to say, have you read it? This is like an episode of 24 or something right here. Against overwhelming odds, verse 16 shows God providentially provided a way out for Paul, get this, by positioning Paul's nephew to hear about the plot. This is so cool. We don't even know that Paul had a nephew. We don't even know that Paul had a sister. All of a sudden, there's a nephew showing up where? In Jerusalem. And he just happens to overhear this plot? Well, let's look at it. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. (laughs) 
Pastor Terry Trivet offers this insight. While here on the ground, the devil still seeks to work us woe, on the throne of heaven above is a God who works all things out for our good and his glory. <laughs> I love this. We don't even know anything about Paul's family. Uh, you, I mean, you, Romans 16, 7 refers to a guy named Andronicus and Junia as his kinsmen, but we don't really know. But because God is in control, he positioned this young man. We don't really know how old he is, but well, let's just imagine him being at least 12 because he traveled to go find Paul some, somewhere in there. Maybe Maybe someone the age of a student in edge student ministry or maybe somebody like mainspring age. God positioned him, get this, at the exact time, at the precise place to hear about the ambush plans for his uncle. (laughs) We're not given the nephew's name. Do you see any other background information here? There's nothing. This is another example of how God loves to use no-name people to accomplish his purposes. This makes me think of the Casting Crown song, which I won't sing for you. You should say thank you. (laughs) I'm just a nobody trying to tell everybody about somebody. So this young man took a risk, right? He enters the barracks. This is a military facility where Paul is being held. Somehow he just goes in. He tells Paul about the plot. Well, let's let the Bible tell it better than I can. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune. This is the military officer for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the, notice how tender that is, took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. <laughs> so Paul hears about the plot from his nephew. He boldly calls one of the centurions over. Do you catch that too? Paul's the prisoner. And he calls this centurion who's in charge of a hundred soldiers. This is an important guy. Calls him over and he comes. He directs him, the centurion, to take his nephew to the Roman officer in charge. The officer takes him tenderly by the hand. They talk together privately. He gets all the details. And before dismissing the young man, he says, don't tell anybody about this. You see God's providence at work there? I do. Paul's able to direct the centurion, this seasoned leader, listened to him, and this Roman military officer took the time to hear what a little 12-year-old wanted to tell him. Now, some might say, that's coincidence. That's luck. (laughs) There are no coincidences with God. Friend, trust in the providence of God when you can't feel the presence of God. First, recognize there's a plot against you. Secondly, rely on the provision of God to you. That leads to the third way that we can increase our trust. Rest in the protection of God around you. See, we all go through times when circumstances are very bleak. And that's when we need to providentially realize that God providentially is at work for his glory and for our good. Listen to verses 23 and 24. Then he called two of the centurions and said, okay, do the math, right? Two of the centurions and said, get ready, 200 soldiers 
with 70 horsemen. What are we up to now? 270. And 200 spearmen. So what's our number now? Okay, how many are in ambush? 40. And then we have the Apostle Paul. So you have 40 ready to ambush Paul, but now we have 470. (laughs) To go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. So this military leader quickly organizes this highly trained security detail of 470 men to escort Paul out of the city. So 200 heavily armed soldiers, 70 members of the cavalry, 200 bodyguards, they're also known as spearmen or javelin throwers. (laughs) Would you note in God's sweet providence, Paul was even given mounts? To ride? What did you notice? It's plural? Why, why would Paul need two horses to ride? At least two. Which shows God's provision. If they thought Paul was really a criminal, they would have made him walk. They left at the third hour of the night. That's nine o'clock at night. Why? Because they wanted to travel under the cover of darkness and leave before the 40 fasting men would expect them. Paul rode out of town that night, escorted like an emperor, not like a prisoner. Don't you love how God often goes over and above in his provision? We sang about it tonight. It's a wonderful illustration of Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the what? The power at work within us to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So you got this overwhelming ratio of 470 to 40. That's almost 12 times more. Makes me think of another passage. 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 16 and 17. Elisha talks to his servant. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. and He freaked out. He's like, we're surrounded. We're done. It's over. In fact, he says, what? Alas. That's like, whoa. My master, what shall we do? Listen to what Elisha says. He said, do not be afraid. Why? For those who are with us. I'm sure the servant's like, what are you talking about? I don't see anybody with us, Elijah. Elisha. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire. Yeah, that's where that movie got the name, right? Chariots of fire all around Elisha. I'm also reminded of 1 John 4, 4. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. When Jesus was taken into the hands of his enemies, do you, do you remember what he said? He, he said that he could call on 12 legions of angels to come to his aid. That's Matthew 26, 53. Do you know how many that is? That's at least 75,000 warring Angels. Jesus said, I could call on them like that. Psalm 91.11, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Friends, God can unleash all the power of heaven to protect you if that is part of his plan. 2 Thessalonians 3.3, But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Now, after organizing Paul's protective detail, this is really funny. The military officer writes a letter to the governor. His name is Felix, and he explains the situation. That was what they always did when they transported a prisoner. said, oh, here are the charges. Here's what's going on. He got most of the details right, though he 
kind of glossed over his own mistakes, and he made himself look, look, look like the hero. We'll see if you can spot it. Claudius Lysias, that's the name of the military officer, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them <laughs> when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. That's really not how it went. Remember, he was ready to scourge him and then found out he was a Roman citizen. And then he was like, whoa, he backed off. He kind of left that out here. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. But here's what's significant. He makes it very clear that Paul has done nothing deserving death. And we're going to see that in some of the trials coming up in our next chapters. Oh, isn't that what Pilate said about Jesus as well? Three different times he said these words. I find no fault in him. In verses 31 and 32, we read what happened next. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. So Antipatris, located about 40 miles north of Jerusalem, was the site of a huge Roman garrison. Yeah, there's still part of the wall standing there from that. Believing Paul to be safe there, the soldiers returned to Jerusalem. The 70 horsemen continue with him, and they take him to Caesarea the next day. Friends, trust in the providence of God when you can't feel the presence of God. Brothers and sisters, recognize there's a plot against you. Rely on the provision of God to you. Rest in the protection of God around you. Well, there's one more way to trust his providence. Rejoice in the purpose of God for you. Our purpose in life, sometimes people are like, I don't have a purpose. I don't know my purpose. And when I hear Christians say that, I'm like, ah, brother, sister, your purpose is to live out God's purpose in and through your life. Listen to verses 33 to 35. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from, and when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive, and he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Interesting. Caesarea is 26 miles from Antipatris. Essentially, this was like a preliminary hearing to determine where Paul's case should be tried. That's why they wanted to know where Paul was from and who should hear it. Herod's Praetorium was built on this beautiful beachfront property. When we were in Israel 10 years ago, this is Caesarea, and parts of it still remain, especially the amphitheater um, there. This is where Herod hung out. It was like his summer home, but he didn't get to enjoy it very long. Do you remember in Acts chapter 12, because of his pride, he was eaten by worms and died? Well, now there are other Roman officers kind of living there in Herod's palace. So Paul's in lodgings that are more like a luxury apartment than a prison. Makes me think of Proverbs 16, 7, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Paul's imprisonment was actually God's providential protection for Paul. Because as we'll see, it puts Paul in position to share the gospel with two Roman governors Plus, it put him on the path to accomplish his larger purpose, which was what? To take the gospel to Rome, and he's going to have Roman protection to get there. This is a good reminder that God doesn't just provide for us or protect us for our good. 
No, he wants us to live out his purposes all for his glory. Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans in the minds of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. While you might not be able to see 470 soldiers at your side, you can be assured of this. Until you finish your work, God will protect you and allow you to rejoice in his purposes. Until his work for you and for me is finished. This principle is stated clearly, Genesis 50, 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for what? Good! To bring about the many people, that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God loves to take what is bad and turn it into good, all for his glory. Man, these past two years have been rough, right? When I pray for our missionaries, oh my, Think of what they're going through. And in some of the countries around the world, the restrictions are, I mean, they're, they're a lot. Let me just tell you about George King. George King has been a missionary in Japan for 60 years. George is now 89 years old and still serving as a missionary. His dear wife, passed away, but his daughter Ruth is with him. Ruth has been there for 33 years. In his most recent prayer letter, just read it this week, George mentioned how COVID has limited his ministry, but in God's providence, God is still using George for his purposes. Listen to George's words. (laughs) I try to travel 700 miles once a month to minister to detainees of Japanese immigration. Uh, Did you remember how old George is? 89 years old. And once a month, he goes to this place that has detainees that the Japanese are holding. Before COVID, I was the only foreigner allowed to hold services inside. Not being allowed inside because of COVID, I now can only minister with individuals with no physical contact. Each of us are in separate six foot by nine foot rooms, a separate six foot by nine foot room separated by glass with two guards in each room. Time for each is limited to 30 minutes. No cameras or electronic devices are allowed. So when I read that far, I think if, if we would hear that George at 89 years old is not going to make that 700-mile trip during COVID because he's only going to have 30 minutes anyway and it's behind this glass and he, it's, it's, it's going to be so hard, I, I think we would probably go, okay, George, you can take a break. <laughs> That's not what George did. Listen to this, his words. On December 7th, a 39-year-old man from Nepal entered the room and immediately said, I want to be saved. 30 minutes later, he was rejoicing with assurance of faith in Christ. God's providence. Friend, are you ready to increase your trust in the providence of God? Even when you can't feel his presence. Because some of us are like, I don't feel him. That means he's not there. Not true. You just don't feel him. But he's at work recognize the plot against you, rely on the provision of God to you, rest in the protection of God around you, and rejoice in the purpose of God for you. I'm going to look at six life lessons that we can apply from this narrative. Number one, be prepared to face opposition and trials, which will come when you choose to serve the Lord. That's been a theme throughout the book of Acts. Persecution is a promise. The second Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Lesson number two, use your position as a platform for God's purposes. Wherever you are, this nephew just happened to overhear the plot. 
What would happen if we all went through our days going, Lord, how do you want to use me today? In this conversation, in this line at Aldi, in my work here, with my friends, with my child's friends, God, how do you want to use me? I think of Mordecai, who was used by God, book of Esther, to overhear a plot against the king's life. I love that. We don't have time to go into that anymore with any depth tonight, but remember the king couldn't sleep? That was God's providence. So what did he do? He couldn't sleep, so he got up and he read his records. That would put him to sleep, right? He reads the records and he goes, wait, there's a guy named Mordecai who warned me about a plot to take my life. And he's like, has anybody rewarded Mordecai? He finds out nobody rewarded him. In the, in the book, it, it's just beautiful. That's all I'm going to tell you tonight. You're going to have to read it yourself. <laughs> it's good, though. But Mordecai looks at Esther, this young queen, and he says these words to you, to her. To her. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. Now, that's a belief in God's providence. Esther, if you don't do it, God's going to use someone else. But you and your father's house will perish. And Esther, who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Esther, use your position. And she did, and it ended up saving the entire Jewish race. Number three, don't look down on someone who's young. That's an application, right? God uses people of all ages for his purposes. I mean, we see that here in our children, our youth, and our mainspring ministry. This is, this is a picture from Wednesday nights uh, with our students. 1 Timothy 4.12, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Number four, this is practical. Always give God credit for his providence. All right, so here's the challenge. It'd be hard for some of us because it's part of our language. Let's stop using the word luck. Stop using the word coincidence and give God glory for his providence. Psalm 33, 11, the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Number five, some of you may have come tonight just to hear this because right now you think God's silent, therefore he's absent. Not true. Just because God may be silent, it doesn't mean he's absent. In John 5, 17, Jesus told us that he and the Father are always at work. Listen, he's always at work, and sometimes we get to see it. But when we don't, remember, he and the Father are always at work. You got, Well, I don't see it. Okay, you don't see it. It doesn't mean he's not at work. He's always at work. Number six, God is in charge of all people in all places. Listen to how Psalm 2 begins. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Good word for us with our international uh, situation uh, right now. Why do the nations rage? Why are nations angry? Why are people plotting in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Do you know how God responds to that? Verse 4, I love it. He who sits in heaven laughs. (laughs) You know, we get all worried and God's like, I got this. The Lord holds them in derision. I appreciate Kenneth Gangle's insight. Sometimes God delivers his children through the simple word of a young relative. Sometimes he has to call in the cavalry. (laughs) At all times, he's ultimately in charge. So here's a question. Will you trust him today? In that situation you're dealing with right now, will, will you trust him? See, the religious people plotted against Jesus. They ultimately had him killed. Evil men did evil things, but 
God providentially arranged all the details. Remember, that fulfilled all these prophecies so that Jesus could die in our place. His death was not an accident. His death did not catch the Father off guard. It was through the death of his son that you and I can be forgiven of our sins. I wonder what happened to those 40 assassins and their vows. We're not told. But wouldn't they have starved to death? And are they now experiencing the curse of God in a hot place called hell? John 3.18 tells us those who don't believe in Jesus will end up in the same place. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Friend, you don't have to call out, we wit to be rescued, but Romans 10.13 makes this promise for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And will you, if you haven't yet, call out to him right now. You could be saved by praying this prayer if you mean it from your heart. Close your eyes and let's pray Pray with me. And uh, many of us are Christ followers. If you're engaging online or here, uh, pray for someone around you who doesn't yet know Jesus. You could pray something like this Lord Jesus, I confess that I'm a sinner and I cannot save myself. I repent of my sins. I repent of doubting you and questioning you and wondering where you are. I change my mind about the way I've been living, self-centered, focused only on me. And I turn now, and by faith, I gratefully receive your free gift of salvation. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming to earth, and with all my heart, I believe you are the Son of God who died on the cross for my sins, and you rose from the dead on the third day. Thank you, Jesus, for bearing my sins and giving me the gift of eternal life. Thank you for dying in my place as my substitute. I believe your words are true. So I believe and I now receive you as my Lord and Savior. I surrender to your leadership, your lordship, your providence, your will. Make me into the person you want me to be as your disciple and help me look for ways to make more disciples as you use me to live out your purpose for me, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you prayed that prayer tonight and meant it, I would love to chat with you after this service. Thanks so much for gathering with God's people tonight. Have a good rest of the weekend.